Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Graham and Steve Talk About the LSAT. I'm Steve Schwartz here in New York. And I'm Graham Blake in Montreal. And we're here to answer your LSAT questions. And uh, did we have it? So we're still deciding on a name. Did we have any short list of names that we'd like the listeners to uh, comment on before we release these publicly? Yeah, we've got a couple in mind. We've got LSAT pros, LSAT guys, how to LSAT were a couple of ideas we've been tossing around, but we'd love to get everyone's feedback on this. Yeah. Last night I thought of some sort of LSAT podcast when doing the intro, but I think that's too unwieldy for a name. But yeah, we would would, um, love to hear what you guys think of the names. And we're because we're going to have to decide on one soon. This is our third episode, and we're probably going to make it public after three or four. So uh, the people listening now will actually know the name of it, even though we don't. Yeah, most of them anyway. We're talking. We're talking in the future, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Um. Okay. So, did you want me to read the first one? Yeah. Sure. Go for it. Okay. So, the first question here is from Daniel, and he says. I don't immediately know what to do when I'm faced with a new rule or condition. So I guess he's asking about lodging games most likely, or I'm asked uh, which of these could be true or which of these must be false or some variant of these questions. I can make an extra inference based on new information. If, I'm, if it is given in the question, then eliminate maybe one or two answers, but then I'm stuck. This hap- uh, And I feel like we should maybe answer this question before going, or going on to the rest of it. Or... Because I, I, I myself, I'm like a little bit lost, so I want to clarify this question. He says, when he's faced with a new rule condition, so I think, is he talking about the sort of question where, okay, so it, in some questions, they'll give you like, if this new rule is true, then what happens? But it seems like he's asking more broadly about like all questions, or no, no, new rule or condition, so it's just that type. Yeah, I think he's talking about like an, an if question, a so-called local question for a game rather than inserting a new entire rule. It's more like if A is on slot three, then which one of the following could be true? I think that's what he's going for. Yeah. And how I understand, I usually understand those as like this is a new rule anyway, as in like A is in slot three is now a new rule. So I think it amounts to the same thing. So he's basically saying that on these like if questions and if you're asked which could be true or which must be false, um, he can make an extra inference. It'll mean something, but then he's stuck. And that's just costing him time, and so that's his question. So what do you make of this? Yeah, sure. So I think in this sort of scenario, you've got a local if question. You want to draw a new diagram, typically. You could start by looking back at previous scenarios you've drawn. Maybe there's a scenario from the orientation question, the first question of the game, that could be useful or maybe another diagram you happen to have drawn previously. Maybe referencing those will help you eliminate choices or help you get the correct answer. But aside from that, I would say you want to draw a new local diagram and carry your inferences as far as you can and wherever you end up, you end up. That's my that's my short answer in that. What do you typically tell students, Graham? Yeah, pretty much the same thing. I need to know a bit more about a situation, but I think he's basically probably not carrying the inferences far enough, and so he needs to work on that skill. Because for me personally, and I also think for most of the people that I work with, these are actually usually like the easiest questions. And, you know, I, I sometimes see people here when they think like something's hard for them and it's called easy, they think like it's like a personal attack. But that, that's not the thing. It's just saying that this actually could be learnable to become like a strength of yours rather than a weakness. Because what you can basically do in these questions is 
they've sort of like set out a path where like one new thing happens and it triggers another thing, then one more, and then maybe one final thing, and then that solves everything. And if you don't get through that like three or four step path, then yeah, it's going to be like a very hard question. Um, so what I think the student should do is practice some of these questions, either using explanations or on their own, and just sort of like learn the path on some of them such that they can start to get a sense of like roughly how far you should go when making deductions. Cause there is always like a stop point. You're like, this leads to that, to that, to that. Oh, now I'm done. And how you figure out where that stop point is, is sort of like intuitive, but um, the more you see, the more you'll get that intuition. Yeah. I think the thing it's about finding that stop point and also being okay with there being a stop point. A lot of times the new condition is not going to give you a fully fleshed out diagram with no ambiguity at all. It's not as if it's necessarily going to lead you to only one outcome. A lot of times you take the new condition that's already giving you the placement of one variable, and then maybe it helps you determine two to four other variables, but there are still going to be a handful whose placements are not determined. And so being okay with stopping there and then looking at your answer choices, you might find that, that could be enough for you. And if in other cases you're not able to carry it anywhere at all, that probably means you need to go back to the rules and look at how you could combine the new information with the with the rules you already had. Yeah, that's a great point because I find a lot of students where they get bogged down on these is they're really trying to like draw like everything and then they'll end up drawing like a bunch of could be trues of like three or four scenarios. But yeah, you just want to stop like at the must be true point and then then you're pretty much done. Um, so the rest of his question was, if I allow myself 20 minutes for a game, I will see that there was a key that can quickly be the answer, but I don't have a methodology, a prepared pattern of thinking to see these keys. Do you have any further thoughts on that? Well, a lot of it will depend on the game type. You know, for different game types, there's different methodologies for ordering versus grouping. And so within those categories, there are certain patterns even within them. And I'm not going to suggest that a student go and memorize all the different types of in-out games or all the different types of ordering games. You don't want to be too regimented. The more recent curveball logic games don't really lend themselves to that. So I think it's more about just having the patterns and the intuitions of knowing when, when, to, go, when, to, go more, when to go farther, when you've gone far enough, and then different diagramming styles. I mean, there, I don't think there's ever really a key that can quickly give you the answer. There's, there's not really a magic bullet. But if you are practicing your intuitions, then you'll have, you'll have a general sense. And that really just comes from doing more games. When you say there's no magic bullet, do you mean no magic bullet on games in general or no magic bullet on like an individual question like that? On games in general, I do think for individual questions, there is often a difference between brute forcing and having you know seeing some sort of insight that unlocks the question for you i can think of a number of games where i I think there's a pattern in in how you can go about solving some of those a lot of times your brute force is not going to be the way to do it i think there's typically there's typically something that will unlock it for you but there's nothing i can say that will tell you how to unlock all of those i think a lot of it comes from having a deeper understanding of the question types and the a deeper understanding of the rules and how they interact with each other and with a local condition to let you eliminate all four wrong choices. 
Okay, yeah, that's what I thought you were saying. I just wanted to make sure, because I agree. There's no magic bullet for, like, games in general. But on individual questions, like, there absolutely is a magic bullet, and it mostly comes from what Steve was talking about there, where you, you start to get an intuition for, like, sort of patterns of, like, maybe this game, maybe that game. And the more of those patterns you get an intuition for, like, sort of the higher your hit rate at seeing these magic bullets in practice. But there's no, like, one thing that can get it for everywhere you just kind of got to practice and i think redo games as well to just uh, but like always be looking for like how could this be faster how could this be faster what was like how far did they want me to go like because what you got to remember is like someone designed all these games they laid down a path for everything and then they like took steps sort of covered up a bit but like there is a path through it's not it's not just random and so if you can sort of try and reverse engineer things and figure out like how what path did they lay that would let me go through this quickly? That's how you can uh, shave time off these things. But it's not going to be a quick process. Like, you know, you may have to take 20 minutes per game for a while to, like, build that. But as long as you're working towards building that intuition, that's not necessarily wasted time because you're working towards improving the speed. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't need to – you'll find that over time as you use more explanations and you redo and redo games, like, you'll see more of those patterns that let you – avoid brute forcing so you can solve the games quickly but i i don't think anyone ever sees all the 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 magic keys to the questions every single time i think i think you know for myself i I certainly don't and sometimes i'm solving like hopefully the majority of the game's questions efficiently and that gives me enough time to do the other questions inefficiently yeah and then later upon reflection and redoing games then we can write and record explanations and it'll look like we have the perfect solution all the time but in reality it's you know, some of the methods that we'll use to explain games i think at least for myself you know i only saw that after doing the game three times or ten times or and working through it with students a number of times as well but there's many different ways to solve these and brute force is not ideal but sometimes that is what you'll end up inevitably doing for certain games questions yeah i had the same method uh going really, really fast on some things is what lets me to sort of bumble around for, for yeah. other questions that like I don't figure out at the first go. So that, that's normal. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, you want to take a look at the next one? Next question yeah. we got here? All right, so Kyle asks, how can I drill myself in different skills by focusing on just one passage? I know just retaking sections isn't helpful. How do I go about developing these skills strategically? What are your thoughts, Uh, Graham? Well, my first thought is, like, I actually think retaking sections is exceedingly helpful. So I disagree with the question. Um, The second is, drill myself in different skills by focusing on just one passage. Like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I understand what he's getting at, because usually to drill different skills, you need different materials. So do do you have any more thoughts on this question? Yeah, I also have some issues with just how it's fundamentally worded. I think that the student wants to drill passages, but while drilling them, drill for a variety of different skills. So maybe we could talk a bit about what you want to be doing when you are trying to get better at reading comprehension. Yeah, because I, I could see a drill where, okay, I'm, I'm getting a, bit, a clear idea here where I think they're saying maybe like they want to redo the same passage and master it, but they don't want to just do it over and over again, perhaps. They want um, to do it in different ways, maybe, and learn from yeah. it. So I could see a few different, I'm assuming they're talking about reading comp, um, a few different things that I think people could drill as they go through. One would be looking for like structural words, as in words like 
nevertheless or however or but that indicate author's opinion and contrast between like two elements that'd be one thing where you just you just go through it and you try and identify those and you see that how they create sections what do you think yeah i think that's definitely a great starting point if they want to if they want to drill the fundamentals and drill the basics then yeah looking looking for keywords is excellent i'd also to look a bit more broader i would i would encourage a student to drill their understanding of the main point for example and drill you know this is of course going beyond just one passage but if you're doing 10 passages then are you consistently pulling away the main idea the primary purpose the author's tone the author's opinion are you consistently walking away with an understanding of that or for if you want to approach the questions in a certain order are you consistently approaching them in the order you want to be approaching them in rather than just doing them in the order given? Or are you consistently approaching them with the amount of time you want to devote to a pass, the, reading the passage versus answering the questions? So I think it's, you, you could have a checklist for yourself where you just walk through the exact steps you want to take when you're doing reading comp. And then each time after you've done a passage or a section, you can ask yourself, did I do all those things I set out to do? Was I consistent in pulling out the main idea was I consistent in how I allocated time? Was I consistent in the order in which I approached the questions? Or did I forget and fall back on old habits? Mm-hmm. And how would you, how would someone sort of rate themselves on whether they were consistent in those ways? Well, I think you could simply have a grid where you, you, you tracked it. You could have a, a tally. You could even just keep it a simple system where you tally each time, each passage where you did those things you wanted to do, where you set out to do them. And then you look at 10 passages or you look at you know, three or four exams worth of passages and then you analyze and you see that you're a bit weak in certain habits. And so you pay special attention to those and emphasize those when you're going in yeah. next time. And then you do just one passage and you make sure that you did what you set out to do. Yeah, well, I suppose I meant how did it, because uh, I feel with reading comp, one of the challenges that people don't understand and they don't know that they don't understand. So in other words, you might actually have missed some of the author's opinion, but you thought you got it. So how are they deciding whether or not, you know, when you say you did what you set out to do, how do does the student who lacks like perfect knowledge about the passage know that they got the main point? Is it just like on an effort basis? So like I was focusing on understanding the main point. I did like a checklist of goals and whether or not I actually got it, I was at least focusing on it and moving in that direction. That's, that's a great that's a great question, Graham. I would say that one way one way, for example, for getting the main point, you could see in whether you got the main point question correct. Usually, there's a main point question or primary purpose question, and so if you understood that question and got it correct, then that would indicate that you did have a good understanding of the main point, and maybe their articulation differs from your own, but if they match up relatively closely then you're probably on the right track. Of course, you can look at explanations as well to see how other people have articulated or paraphrased the main point of that question, of that passage. Yeah, I was just, uh, I was actually thinking about my own explanations when doing this because I was, it occurred to me that I probably should like note all the structural words and note all the author's opinions words when I'm writing an explanation. Like I currently don't. So if someone reads my explanation for the passage, like they will sometimes get a view of like, uh, this is the author's opinion here, or this word is important, but I don't systematically like highlight 
all the times where it like nevertheless shows up. Um, I should probably start doing that because I think that would be a valuable tool that students could uh, get used to get feedback in this way. They're like, did I spot all the words? Well, I think that the, you know, walking away with the author's opinion is obviously key. And there are, are often a few lines where they summarize their, their opinion. There's, there are certain lines at least you could point to as referencing it. But as for those other words, like nevertheless, I'm actually not sure how useful they really are. I know that you're, you're saying you should go back and change your explanations, but I actually think that overemphasizing those keywords isn't that, isn't that useful. I don't think it goes deep enough into the structure of passages. I think that a paragraph can change direction three or four times. So you have however, but nevertheless, although, yeah. and so on. But some of those changes in direction are actually aren't as important as one might think. That's true. I don't want to make them like the be all end all. I just also notice that like some students like don't even see them at all. Like they just okay, I don't know, they, like, yeah. wash over their heads. Um, so in terms of making like a drill of like awareness of the main point or awareness of author's opinion or awareness of structural words, you wouldn't need to like spot them every single time. But you do need to even if you are like looking and seeing like okay this it's swerved here there there but this isn't the main thing. But you are aware that like those words are there. I think when you do it probably. Yeah, you do want to be aware of them. I, I think that's certainly key for anyone who's looking to score well on reading comp. Know, know when they appear and recognize a change in direction. Mm -hmm. That can also often help you separate out major view, multiple major viewpoints from each other as well. Yeah. So back to Kyle's question, I said, like, how do I go about developing skills strategically? I think maybe we could sum it up as identifying some areas you want to work on doing focused practice and evaluating yourself and then seeking feedback to see if you actually were like doing it effectively where feedback is in the form of like the main point question you mentioned or an explanation or something else. Solid. Yeah. I think you nailed that one. All right. Um, oh, and I, I just want to add again, I, I really do think like merely retaking a section after some time actually is really useful. And uh, the one tip I would give people, cause I see people often think like, Oh, well, like I just remember the answer. So there's no point, but when I'm retaking, the goal is to like prove the answer or disprove the wrong ones or to do it quickly or to see the methods or the, the ways and the reasons and so on. So, you know, you're not just picking D and then being like, oh, well, I'm done there. I remember that. Um, you retake with like a bit of a different purpose, even if you remember the answers. Because like, I'm sure like you learn a lot when you see questions over again if a tutoring student asks to put them right. Yeah, no, of course. I think that when redoing a passage or redoing a game for that matter, like you want to definitely be looking at how you could approach it differently from the previous attempt. And also look, especially for reading comp, look more at the line references, look more at those key line references that support a given answer choice. Or maybe LSAC references it in the question system, or maybe you need to be able to point to certain lines. Because even with the inference questions in reading comp, the answer is found somewhere in the text. Maybe it's reading between the lines or a paraphrase of some sort, but it is there. Yeah. Okay, so shall we move on to the next one? Yeah, sure. So Anon, who's presumably anonymous, but I suppose that could be an actual name, and then they'll just have <laughs> unfortunate jokes at their expense every time they write into podcasts. Uh, sorry, uh, Anon, if that is your name. Um, they ask, when beginning to study for a retake, where do I begin? So what do you think about this? Yeah, 
retaking is more common than ever. It's certainly often good for many students to retake. You want to look at what you did differently last, what you want to do differently this time around and what did not go well for you the previous time. So maybe you didn't use the right study methods, maybe you didn't put in enough time, but you've got to change your approach. And for a lot of people that will involve detailed review and integrating that more into their study. What are your thoughts, Graham? I think one thing important on a retake is that actually encompasses like a wide spectrum of behavior. So you need to get like sort of a big picture overall view of where you're at and what your skill set's like. For example, sometimes people are like, well, you know, I want to get a 170 and I took it before and I got a 149. So what do I do? Um, and then there's actually a couple of cases there. It's like, well, what if that person had been studying for two weeks or if that person has been studying for like six months, those are actually two separate cases as well. So just within like the 20 point golf case, we've got two cases. Then there's someone who's like, well, I want 170 and I was like prep 10 scoring at like 172 on average. And then I got a 165. What do I do? And that's a very different scenario. Like that person may not even have to study that much. Um, all right, so, um, and then you've got ones where, you know, could be anywhere in between and people may have like a solid grasp of the fundamentals or they may have like burned through all the prep tests and learned nothing. Um, I see all sorts of cases like this. So you need to evaluate like one, like, do I know the basics? Uh, and if so, what do I still need to practice on? Uh, like what materials do I have left? I think it's a good idea for people to make a list of like which prep tests are sort of clean because you need some tests to give you like an accurate score measure when you're retaking and sometimes supplies can be short. Um, and you also need to, I think, take into account the role of randomness. This is for people that are sort of like near their goal and they're deciding what to do and like, do I really want to put in many more months and so on. I think if like your prep test score was roughly at the level that you want to get, then you don't necessarily have to study that hard. You just basically just have to be rested and randomness if it brought you low once it may bring you high the next time i think that's an excellent point and an excellent distinction someone who is looking to make a massive score jump and might not have the foundation or fundamentals down they need to study as if it's it's the as, as if it's their first time but they're doing everything right this time and so that mm -hmm. would involve going back to the basics getting getting the books you need using actual lsat questions and probably putting in several months if you're looking for a 20-point jump. If, On the other hand, if you're someone who just had a test day score drop, it could be randomness alone. And so maybe studying this time just involves staying fresh, using whatever clean exams you have left, maybe redoing some that you've seen before, and engaging in detailed review and also proper test day simulation, simulating yeah. test day conditions, to avoid any unexpected problems that might arise. Because at, at the higher end, it's not as if you necessarily have that much more to learn. It's about being consistent and not letting any obstacles or unexpected events get in your way. Yeah. And I also think you want to do some analysis on test day itself. So test conditions that you mentioned can be one of the things that like make for a score drop. Like if people are, say not using a bubble sheet, then that's effectively giving yourself extra time. So of course you're going to score lower on test day. Or if you've been giving yourself extra breaks, or if you've been doing like separated sections instead of a whole test together. Um, if you've been doing it only in like a quiet space and the thing got on your nerves, if you didn't sleep properly, if you were burnt out, like these all can be reasons why a test day score drop might happen. I'm, I mean, that's not all retakes, but that is a chunk of them. And so you have to sort of analyze what happened and then what would I do to avoid it like if the answer was if you were burnt out then the answer is like 
take some time off and relax and also don't overwork yourself the week before the next exam. Yeah, I think that's solid. I think that people need to be simulating test day conditions as, as well as possible. So that would involve five section exams, not four, being strict with the timing, strict with the break, being accustomed to any distractions that might come up. And so simulating those conditions, actually taking an exam in a library or a cafe and maybe having someone else proctor you if you're not going to do it strictly enough. Or maybe yeah. go to one of the free practice exams that the major prep companies offer just to get a simulated test day experience as closely as possible. And the yeah. last thing I would say is, you know, maybe just for retakes in general, looking back at your exam results from before, if it was a disclosed exam, but also recognizing that those are of somewhat limited usefulness because it's a sample size of only one exam. Yeah. Right, anything else on this one or you think no, we covered it? I think that's all I got. Okay. All right. Next one is from Nicole. Where can I find the types of method of reasoning that may exist? Yeah, I think what she means is just, you know, different methods of reasoning that, yeah. I guess, logical reasoning questions use. Yeah, it's a big question because there's, like, there's both methods of reasoning, which I haven't even really thought about, frankly, and then there's flawed methods of reasoning, which I have thought about some, and I know there's, geez, at least, like, 120 different flawed methods of reasoning on the test if not more but I'm yeah sure, yeah but there go ahead i was just gonna say yeah there are a lot of flaws out there and you know, by some counts over 100 yeah and then for regular methods of reasoning like i don't do you even think about this i have thought about it and i think that it's just too many to count there are too many flaw there are too many methods of reasoning out there to really properly analyze them or categorize them. I don't think it would be useful to do so. I do think yeah. it's important to think about method of reasoning, so of course. And so in that case, I would say that it's useful to thoroughly understand logical reasoning stimuli and then consider how there could be different questions associated with each method of reasoning, regardless of the question stem type that you're dealing with. But I don't think I could name all of them. I think there's just too many. Yeah, same here. Like, I, I do think it's it's very helpful in the moment to ask yourself, like, how are they doing the thing that they're doing? But I don't think it's all that useful to... Uh... Oh, sorry, my screen just turned off. I don't think it's useful to just have a whole list of them because, like, I don't use that, and I don't really know anyone successful that does. And, like, I'm, I moderate the Reddit forum, and, like, I've never really seen anyone talking about, like, here's all the methods of reasoning. So I, I do remain open to the possibility that simply because there's so many, no one's bothered to catalog it. But if someone had cataloged it, then it would be helpful. Um, but I don't think so, because actually I have seen a flawed method of reasoning list, and I don't think it actually, like, did any good to the people who had access to it, just because there's, there's just so many. You, you sort of have to get them from experience. Yeah, I agree. I think it's from exposure to a lot of arguments, a lot of logical reasoning stimuli, and over time you you organically absorb them and they become part of, they kind of filter into your subconscious so that when you do a new question, you can in some way relate it back to a previous question you've done and you're already more likely to absorb that reasoning and understand it well as a result. One example that comes to mind, a reasoning type that I love is system effect. 
we're introducing a, for example, a proposed solution into a system actually introduces a new problem. So for example, like one example would be you're requiring people to wear bicycle helmets when they bike around and that could make them safer on one level, but then maybe they, they bike more recklessly as a result of feeling safer and that person would be better off having no bike helmet at all. I'm not saying don't wear a bike helmet, but I'm saying that things can have unintended consequences. And I've seen a number of LSAT questions that play on this type of reasoning. But yeah. I, I, I'll call it system effect, because that's what I think it's called. But there are so many things like that, it would be too difficult to name them all. And again, it's not that productive. I think it's better to just see them in reality, see them in the questions. Yeah, and I know this is always like a supremely disappointing answer when students hear it because you know it's like oh how do i learn this thing it's like oh well just do a bunch of questions and you'll learn it and it's like oh well thanks um like it <laughs> it it, 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 it's, it feels like you just want to like i don't know in college or in high school you'd get things where it's just like all right well like learn these things and they'll be on the test and then you learn some things memorize them and they're on the test and then you regurgitate them but the thing is about like that kind of knowledge is like you don't you've probably forgotten most of it and that's not what the LSAT is testing it's instead a skill-based test so it's testing your skill at sort of understanding these methods of reasoning and simply reading a list doesn't make you skilled any more than like reading a list of like methods of computer programming makes you a computer programmer or reading a list of like tennis strategies makes you good at tennis. Um, the, the main component in these things is actually like sort of muscle memory, intuition and expertise. And the LSAT is testing that. So that's why you're often going to get answers like this when you ask for like, what's a big list of all the things I've got to know? Um, and it's just, it's not actually, I think, the most effective way to approach things. Yeah, it's one of those, th those things I agree. You really learn by doing. And just not to leave students totally empty-handed on this, there is a book I'd recommend. It's called A Rule Book for Arguments by Anthony Weston. And it's kind of like a logic equivalent to The Elements of Style by Strunk and White, which is like a grammar and writing book. So A Rule Book for Arguments is the closest I've come to seeing a, a reasonable catalog of reasoning or at least a, a general overview of different types of deductive reasoning. And so that, that's something. I'm not saying it's, you know, it's not LSAT specific or anything, but it's fairly, it's, it's fairly good. It's concise. It's just over 100 pages. And so if you're interested, you could check that out. But I would say really it's more just focus your time on the LSAT problems. Yeah, interestingly, I would actually say like most of the learning that I've done for understanding argument types has been outside the LSAT. So like, I haven't read that book. I'm thinking I should check it out. But I've read other things where like, I don't know, I studied economics. And so I see a bunch of economics concepts in there, like opportunity cost or marginal benefits or um, and. And there's things I've seen from other areas, like reading books about flawed reasoning. I'll start to notice like, oh, this is like a sort of. I'm short on examples right now, but I'll recognize a concept that I learned somewhere else in the LSAT. Um, but, and those are, can be helpful, but it's like you say, it's better usually just to do the LSAT because it's like a slow indirect way of gaining knowledge that basically I gained over a lifetime. And it's not the most efficient way to like get the knowledge that you need within like a three to six month period. You're better off just yeah. focusing on the thing itself and maybe in your leisure time reading a book like this, if it's personally fun to you. Yeah, agreed. I think that the, there, the LSAT flaws, for example, there are lists of flawed reasoning. You know, by some counts, there are like a dozen of the classic logical fallacies that show up like 
ad hominem personal attacks, for example. But that sort of thing doesn't come up that often. It might come up once every dozen exams or so, but most of the flaws on the LSAT are more about failing to consider something. And that something could be an alternative possibility or explanation or the way in which a study or survey was conducted. But it's your understanding that's going to unlock this for you, not reading about them in some abstract sense in a list. There is one exception I tell people about flawed reasoning, which is where I think on those questions, one of the biggest challenges for people is they simply don't understand what the answers mean. Um, even though it's not like the flaw used in the argument, they don't know what the wrong answer means, and so they sort of twist it to match what they think they saw in the argument. And I do tell people not to like memorize a list of all the flawed arguments, but when you are faced with specific questions you got wrong, to go through the answers and think like, what does this mean and what's an example of it? And start sort of building your own list based on those answers so that when you, because the flawed question answers repeat generally. And so on another question, knowing what the answer meant um, is valuable, but you're not just l like learning some abstract flawed method of reason that you look for later. You're looking at an actual thing that tripped you up and learning what it means, and then you're gonna retain the knowledge better. Yeah, agreed. I think that really helps with the, the abstract language that LSAC uses. They use abstract language to describe these flaws and methods of reasoning, and because of the, of the terminology, the vocabulary, and your words like antecedent and consequent, which we don't use in everyday life, gaining an understanding yeah. of those words and those phrases is really important to help you save time in eliminating them or choosing them. They do repeat this phrasing and it's it's worth your while to look up any of those terms you would understand. You could do that as an exercise, just going through all LSAT questions that use abstract reasoning, whether it's articulating flaws or articulating simply the method of reasoning that they're using. Mm. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out, that it, it is the abstract bit of it rather than the flaw itself. Cause like, Everyone can understand sufficient and necessary condition errors, I think, when they're worded in like a simple way that, you know, like, oh, well, like, obviously, if something is a tail that doesn't make it a cat, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get this. But then you say, like, antecedent consequent, and you're like, huh? Like, so it's not the methods itself, actually. It's the way the LSAC phrases these methods that you've got to learn. Yeah. So just look them up. Google the phrase, Google the word, look up definitions. But these words do repeat, so it's worth your time to learn them rather than just saying, oh, I keep not getting these wrong because I don't get the words. Like you can do something about it. You can yeah, yeah. <laughs> look them up. Because <laughs> like, you know, you're and you're going to have to do that if you become a lawyer. Like you can't be in court and a judge says antecedent or, or the legal rules book says <laughs> antecedent. And you're like, well, I don't need to know this because I don't know it. Like, no, <laughs> like <laughs> the law. Oh my God. Like if you think LSAT words are hard, like in law school, we had words that I still don't know. Like uh, sub-infutination was like something in property class. Well, uh, yeah. I can't remember what that means, but I, I had this law dictionary that I bought and like, just when I was reading cases, I would just gradually look up all the words that I didn't know. Cause, uh, it's, it's much harder than the LSAT in terms of unknown things. So start the habit now. Yeah. Yeah. Solid. I think, so I think we hit this one. Yeah. Uh, all right. So Celine asks, how's a highlighter helpful in diagramming? I have one thought on this, but, uh, what do you think, Steve? Uh, I don't think it is. I just, I, I think I would say no. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's useful. I think it wastes time. I think it's, it's distraction. What do you think? My inclination is to say no. The one exception 
uh, is someone mentioned that they used it where they sort of drew their main diagram and then they like they highlighted the elements that shouldn't change and then they would draw things on the diagram um, and then erase them when the question was done. I still don't like this. I'm only mentioning it because I know people's brains work differently and there are some cases where like just the prescribed methods that work for most people just really may not work for you. I think you should try them. So the prescribed method would be you draw your main diagram somewhere, you don't touch it, you draw local diagrams like somewhere else closer to the questions, then you later have these local, uh, so by local I mean like if you're drawing a question for question 8, then the, the diagram that you draw for question 8 stays there and you can refer to it afterwards versus your main diagram. And uh, and that's generally how you should make diagrams. Would you agree that this is like, roughly speaking, like the approved method that most people use? Oh, 100%. Yeah, and I think you should try this method because, like, you know, some people just don't try it and they don't give it a chance to get good at it. But if you try it and, like, for whatever reason, like, it really doesn't work for you, like, and I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, like, when I'm doing diagrams, I'll, like, draw some variables by the diagram and I can imagine them in my head sort of, like, moving into spots on the diagram and I can visualize things falling into place. Can you do this? Yeah, you can definitely, yeah, for me personally, yes. I can start to see what a hypothetical would look like before even drawing it. Yeah, so it, for this example, like, so both of us can do this. I was working with one student who just like, I'm like, can you do this? She's like, nope. And, you know, she was like extremely smart and like very capable, but like her brain could not do that. And there's some things that like other people can do that like I just can't do with my brain. So if based on like the way your brain works, like nothing about that prescribed method makes sense, then a highlighter could be used to mark some permanent elements I still wouldn't recommend doing it, but that's that's the only one case where I've heard of where I thought like, oh, that's interesting. Like, there's actually a method there, you know. Uh, there's there's like some actual rationale for using a highlighter, versus because otherwise I'm just like, yeah, I've <laughs> I have no idea why one would use a highlighter other than that. Yeah, so I think I think for this one, I would I would agree with you that you know, different things work for different people, and so yeah, if you're having some obstacle doing things the way most people typically do, then of course modify experiment but don't experiment the day of the exam and hopefully not the week of the exam hopefully uh, at least for a month or so you could practice implementing something like using a highlighter and then see how it affects your flow yeah and i I should be cautious about saying these things because now maybe people be like oh yeah i heard like graham from else hacks recommends using a highlighter to like mark elements (laughs) and erasing your diagram like no i don't i don't recommend it (laughs) I, I, i think this is probably a bad idea but if you were going to use a highlighter <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah yeah no, no major changes um, and while we're on the question of highlighters because these come up so rarely do you use or recommend a highlighter for anything at all no I honestly don't use one at all I don't even think I have one sorry you don't even what I don't even think I own a highlighter it's just not something that's part of my flow yeah dude I'm not even sure if I do like I you know I've got a little like supply cabinet of like vinyl erasers and number two pencils and a pencil sharpener for the LSAT, but I don't think I have a highlighter in there. Um, yeah, I, I don't think they're useful. I think maybe if you're the sort of person that like highlighted all your textbooks in university and it like helps you somehow, then maybe, but I never was that person. So I just don't use them. Yeah. I've even seen one system someone advocates where they have like three different highlighter colors and it's all a, this color coded system. And that strikes me as being horribly inefficient with all the switching costs but yeah if it works for somebody that that's great 
I, I think one issue when you talk about the highlighters in textbooks in college, and I didn't do that, but that reminds me of something I, I often see, you know, I see some students do, where they'll highlight or underline as they're reading, and it's their way of staying engaged. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know what uh, I'm talking about, that habit? Pretty much, yeah, I've heard of that. Pretty much my only thoughts are, if it helps you stay engaged, then good. Because, uh, like, then do it. Um, and then my only other thought would be, whenever you're doing some system, just make sure that you're actually doing it for a reason and you're not just doing it to sort of, like, have something to do or feel like you're making progress rather than working on the thing itself. Because there's a fine line. Because, like, so, like, I've never had trouble focusing on text. And so it's hard for me to give solid advice about what to do to focus on text. So I can only go with what people tell me. If they're like, well, I get distracted and underlining, uh, like, helps. Then I'm like, well, that sounds like a good idea then. But I don't really know. And I know also that some people do get bogged down in diagrams. So you just have to ask yourself, whatever you're doing with the pencil or highlighter is like, am I just doing stuff because you know, like I feel bad at the passage itself and so I want something to do? Or is this helping me achieve a measurable goal on the passage? And what you should do depends on how the answer to that question goes. That's a great distinction, Graham. I really like how you articulated, are you just doing this out of habit? Are you just doing it to have something to do because you don't like what you're reading? And so this is a way to get back at the passage by doing something to it. I don't know what, what people are thinking, but yeah, exactly. But I, I can understand that. For me, the issue is you're making a marking on the text that you can't easily take away. If you're actually highlighting it or you're actually underlining and you're just kind of underlining everything or highlighting everything, then you could be doing yourself a disservice later when you want to return to that text because you want to look at a certain key part. I guess if you've highlighted or underlined everything, that also means you've highlighted and under, underlined nothing because the consequence is the same. But I would, my, my intuition tells me that a lot of students underline just to have something to do. And so I would recommend for anyone listening to just try not doing that for a little bit and see if anything changes for you. Yeah, I think or that's maybe a good you approach. can. Maybe you can make the marking without actually marking. So you touch the pencil lightly enough to the page where nothing actually gets transferred. Yeah. Or drag the eraser back behind it. Or if you've got like one of those pencils without an eraser on the back, just like move that underneath. Mm -hmm. um, like but yeah. Pointer. And yeah. Yeah. And highlighters, highlighters do frighten me for this reason. Just because like you can always erase a pencil underline if it's a mistake. Like the highlight is just there, like glaring at you, and like you can't look away from it. It's like this bright color, like drawing your attention to the irrelevant thing again and again. So, I'm not, I'm not too inclined towards them. Yeah. Yeah. Same. All right. All right. You want to touch on one more? Yeah, I think so. So. All right. So Nadine's asking, how can I become more confident in my answer choice? On a majority of questions, I'm down to two answer choices, and thereafter, I get very frustrated and anxious. Why am I doubting myself or falling into certain traps? Most frustrating parts when I didn't select the answer choice I felt confident about, which turns out to be the correct one. So I guess she's confident. How does she become more confident? Down, she's down to two and falls into traps. What do you think, Graham? I, I think that the way to get more confident is to get better at eliminating the, the, the other answer. Like I don't think it's a confidence issue in most cases. Because, like, the, the, the lack of confidence is for a clear reason. You have two and you don't know which one's it. Like, confidence in that situation would be misplaced. That's a great point. Yeah, I think she's got to... 
doubt herself when she's wrong and be confident when she's right. And so it comes down to just getting better at logical reasoning, if that's the section she's talking about, for example. Yeah, that's where it usually comes up, I think. I think I think being down to two is the, the, the most common complaint in the book. People are down to two and they choose the wrong one. And my response yeah. to them is, well, you're not thinking about all the times where you were down to two and you, you guessed and got it right. Yeah. And you've got to review all of those, whether you answered right or wrong in the end. But she, one thing she said stuck, stuck out to me, falling into certain traps. What are some common traps you see in those situations, Graham, where someone's down to two? I'm bad at this part. <laughs> I don't. Oh, yeah. I, I'm bad at systematizing of like all the ways there are traps because I feel like the trouble with logical reasoning is there's like 500 different types of traps that they can put you in. Um, but to go meta, I think the real trap is that you've missed something that you should know and that there may be choosing between the answers instead of thinking like, well, geez, I'm between two answers. It means I'm missing something. Why don't I go back up to the argument and see what I've missed by focusing on these two things and like what key term eluded me? But you may have some more practical thoughts on like actual trap methods. No, but I think that's a great point to, to go meta for a second and look at what was your understanding of the stimulus? If you're down to two and you're not sure, you probably didn't understand everything or else you would have gotten down to one. So this relates to something I think a lot of students do, which is just they don't spend enough time reading the stimulus and focusing on the stimulus and thoroughly understanding it. A lot of times they read the stimulus and they're like, well, that's confusing. Let me go to the choices and see if that helps. But of course it doesn't help because it's just throwing more information at you that only makes sense in the context of a proper understanding of the stimulus and applying the question stem to it. So I would go back to basics, understand the stimulus more thoroughly. And beyond that, traps and wrong answer choices, there are there, there are many, many different traps they use, but there are some common ones I think it could be worth us discussing. And I'm sure we'll come up with more just as we talk about this. But I think mismatch between evidence and conclusion, a lot of times a slight subtle shift. I think one thing you referred to in a past episode or conversation, Graham, was distinguishing healthy versus healthier. Yeah, so relative absolute. That's an, so that, that's a trap. If the stimulus was making a claim about healthy and the answer choice or the conclusion then jumped to healthier, that mismatch can lead to a trap in the answer choices if they play on that. Mm. So those sorts of mismatches or in relative versus absolute or a mismatch in the degree of certainty, you always versus sometimes or the majority of the time or a change in the category of who they're discussing or what they're discussing broadening from what was qualified in the stimulus. So any sort of jump beyond what was claimed or supported in the stimulus is a trap of some kind because everything else is typically remaining the same. They're using the same the same phrases, the same language, the same terms. And so that will make it seem comfortable and familiar and safe when in reality there was one small thing that changes everything. Yeah. And... I agree, and I have thought of another trap. This one's specific to strengthen and weaken questions, but they're pretty common, so this applies widely. That's where the use of words like some that tend to trip people up, because like, they'll put something in that like feels persuasive. So like, let's say you were trying to persuade someone against going to Seattle, and you're like, well, some people in Seattle are jerks. That's not persuasive at all, because it could be just like one person in Seattle is a jerk. 
and that's surely true like everywhere so this tells us like exactly nothing about seattle um and, but so on strength and weakened questions if you've got like some in the answer i don't want to say it's automatically wrong because there are some situations where it would matter that like some something or other is is true but most of the time it doesn't so that would be a, a trap on strength and weaken it's just like an answer that can't possibly affect anything yeah excellent yeah so something that has no impact but yeah. seems related to the stimulus topic yeah and i would also broaden that to say that there are other situations where like if you think about like the least impactful version of an answer it has no impact then it like almost certainly can't be right yeah, I think that's fair. There's something that's too moderate or just unrelated. So yeah, if it has, if it has, it's unrelated, it has no impact, not going to have any sort of consequence. I think what's more tempting than that sometimes is something that does the opposite of what the question stem is asking. So if the attempting wrong answer to weaken could be strengthen, or mm. attempting wrong answer for necessary assumption could be sufficient assumption, oh, which yeah, isn't that's... quite an opposite, but does have does have a certain appeal to it. Oh, yeah, this comes up big on the accept questions, too, where it's just like you get in long enough and it does the opposite and you've forgotten what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's definitely a pretty nasty trap. So checking the stem on situations like that or just routinely checking, like, does this make sense? Like a two-second check can often save you from a lot of those, like, stupid mistake-type traps. Yeah. Um, And these are things that – yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, just another one occurred to me was, like, the word most unnecessary assumption questions negating most generally lacks impact because like let's say uh like most of the people in your building are nice could be like 51 percent, and if you say like not most of the people in your building are nice it could be 50 percent. so at like at like the slightest negation it's like it has no practical change because your life is basically the same whether or not 51 50 percent people are nice there's there's no impact and so the answer is wrong or probably that's wrong. a great point that's a great additional one yeah and i think that as students just as you review more, you'll start to see the patterns in wrong answer choices and what makes you fall for them. But it's that review process, that process that's really going to make the difference for questions for your logical reasoning score. Yeah, I agree. You need to review and think like, why did I choose this? What did they do? Because there's so many different ways they can do it. Like people, students will come to me with questions, but like I hadn't even considered of like something as being like a tempting reason. And to the extent that I just don't hear from most students, they just, you know, read my site and don't ever talk to me. I don't actually know what people are thinking. Uh, So to some extent, like we've covered some of the like the bigger, more common traps, but there's going to be a lot of traps just like personal to you. And you have to figure out like, how did they get into my brain and make me move my hand and select B as the answer in this case? And you don't just chalk it up to like a stupid mistake because they are like very, very, very clever in how to design it. And they meant to make you do that yeah a lot of it is playing on the incorrect logical pathways that students are likely to go down yeah and so there's i i I like to think of it this way where like if they ask who is the president of the united states the answer choice like homer simpson is quite obviously wrong to most people unless they're randomly guessing but a choice like barack obama is appealing to some people because he was the president of the u.s he's just not currently the president so there is a a rough similarity there or if you have the question like three times two is six a tempting choice might be five 
if someone did addition instead and added yeah. three and two together. So it's those incorrect operations that can be appealing wrong answers. Yeah, or George Washington, if they misread the question as saying, like, who was the first president? And, you know, they might say something like, on January 1st, who became the president? Yeah. And, like, and, and, and that will screw up, like, 1.5% of brains. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one other thing I want to cover in this question just before we sign off is just the general impression of uh, people saying they generally, like, they're stuck between two and they choose the wrong one. I was starting to see if Nadine actually, like, said that. Um, but what I think you should do if you're a student who's feeling like you're always using the wrong answer is check yourself by going through a few sections and every time you're stuck between two, mark that question and then mark which two you were stuck between and then tally the total and like average it out over like three to four sections. How many times was I stuck? How many times did I get it right or wrong? I'm guessing the error rate is going to be about 50% or better on the ones where you're stuck between two if well i no that doesn't necessarily follow because if it's like a really hard question then it could make sense that the error rate is like less than 50 even if you're down to two but i still think it's going to be near 50 for most people and if that's the case then you don't actually have the problem of like oh, i'm stuck between two and i always pick the wrong one it's just an optical illusion because like some people tell me this and like i basically think like, I don't believe them until they've done this analysis and, like, prove it to me. Like, no, no, I always am doing opposite day sort of thing. Yeah, it's a really great way to drive it home and make it clear to people that you're not always getting it wrong. Yeah. Um, so I'm just looking over Nadine's question. Was there anything we didn't cover here? No, I think, so, we, I think we pretty much hit it. I just, I just, right. I want to say a bit more about confidence. So it's like, why am I doubting myself? How do I become more confident? And the most frustrating part is when I don't select the answer choice that I felt confident about, which turns out to be correct. Um, so I think what's worth doing here is something called blind review, where you um, mark down all the questions you're unsure about and review them afterwards without checking your answer. And you want to kind of get feedback here on which question, oh, sorry. So what you do is like, let's say you like mark a question, you're like, I'm not sure about 17. You would then go over it with unlimited time before checking the answer and then see if you would still pick the same answer or pick a different one. And you can get a few different categories here where it's like, all right, I had doubts and I picked the wrong answer and I picked the wrong answer in review. That means like you just, you didn't understand the question, but you did at least know that you didn't understand, which is valuable. You can have others where like you mark it as like no need for review and then you get it wrong. And like, that's a terrible situation because you just, you don't even know that there was a problem. And then you have others where like, you're unsure, you had it wrong, but with review, you mark it right. And, or you had it right, and with review, you mark it wrong. Um, the, you know, there's different things you can learn about each situation, but I think doing this exercise can like teach people about how accurate their intuition is for certain things. Because that's how you can get confidence, even when you're not getting all the questions right. Like, you know, I, I said originally to Nadine, like, how do you become more confident? It's like, well, you, you learn to get the right answer. And but I meant that specifically in the case where you're down between two. But you can be confident even if you only get 8% of questions right if you know that when you feel right, you're right, and when you feel wrong, you're wrong. And I think that's I really like that. I really like that. Yeah, actually marking your confidence level before you know the answer. I think that could really help. Yeah, because like I know, like I still make mistakes sometimes, but even before that, there are questions on the first time through I don't get it, but like I know when I'm not getting it and I just skip it and I come back at the end of the section 
And then on ones where I'm right, I know that I'm right. And I do this because like I've done so many questions and I sort of like, I've had enough times where I've thought I was right and then I'm wrong that I start to realize like, oh, well, these are markers for false confidence. And you, you want to develop an intuition about your like threshold. Yeah, that way you know which, which questions to invest more time in than others. You can avoid getting bogged down and you can come back to those questions you were not that confident in later after you've knocked out the easier ones. All right. Do you want to leave off there for today? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really valuable place to end off. All right. So at the moment, we, as a recording, we don't have a website set up for the podcast. So if you have uh, questions that you want us to answer, you can just go to our sites and email either one of us with like subject line podcast question, and we'll put it into the notes for a future podcast. And uh, yeah. on that note, maybe, where, maybe we should mention our sites again. Yeah. Yeah. Where can people find you, Steve? So people can find me on the LSAT blog, and my name is Steve Schwartz. Uh, you can email me at lsatunplugged at gmail.com as well. Okay. And what about you, Graham? And my site is LSAT Hacks. That's lsathacks.com. And if you go to the About page, there's a contact form that you can fill out to send an email. And is there anywhere people uh, should follow you in particular? Like, do you post on Facebook or Twitter or anywhere on social media? No, I try to stay away from social media. <laughs> uh, best way to follow me is basically to join my email list if you visit my website a box will pop up that's the best way to keep in touch okay sounds good yeah i've got one of those too and if you want to follow me on social media somewhere instagram is the main place that i'm uh taking like lsat student followers so you can find me there instagram graham underscore blake awesome all right well everyone knows how to reach us and please reach out let us know your ideas for a name that would be helpful so we could start having a name Awesome. Sounds good. Please do that. And all right. Thanks everyone for listening and good luck with the LSAT. All right. Bye guys.